Nehemiah chapter 2 this evening. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave to them, they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands this evening. And then you can read along even as we're teaching the Word of God. And that makes it easiest to concentrate and and to follow along. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 2, picking things up in verse 9. And just kind of a brief recap, we remember that Nehemiah, uh, while serving uh, in Shushan, which was the winter uh, palace of the Persian king Artaxerxes, he was Artaxerxes' uh, cupbearer, very, very significant position and continual access before the king. I mean, in those days, people would pay a lot of money or do a lot of things to get access to just five minutes of the king's time. And this guy virtually lived in the king's presence uh, during his waking hours. He received news. He's a Jew. And he received news concerning his Jew, uh, from his Jewish brethren concerning the condition of the Jews. And two large numbers of uh, groups of Jews had returned from Babylonian captivity, now Persian kind of captivity, back to uh, Judah, back to Jerusalem. And he asked, what's the condition of the people? And he was informed that the condition of the people uh, was that they were in, uh, here in the words of, of, uh, of verse 3 of chapter 1, that the people were in great distress and reproach. And on top of that, the wall of Jerusalem was broken down and the gates were burned with fire. In other words, it was a miserable condition that the Jews were in. It was a million miles away from the life that God had described that he had for his people. And, and it was caused by their disobedience to him. But Nehemiah knew that uh, the children of Israel had been through the 70 years of captivity with the Babylonians. They had repented. They were turning back to God. They did have their problems still. And, uh, but in general, this was something that was happening in their midst, and they were living way below the promises. And so here is these, these walls have been broken down 120 years or so earlier by Nebuchadnezzar's general. And, there, and Jerusalem is in the same condition that it was 120 years ago. And he looks at that and that's just unacceptable to him. And even if everybody else in Jerusalem that's living there, all of the Jews, they've got Bibles, they've got, they know the promises of God. They see this great distance between the promises of God and the life that they're actually living, and they're just rolling with it. And what they need is somebody to come out of left field, and God provides these kind of people in, his, in our lives and in, in church history to come out of left field, show up on the scene and say, what in the world are we doing living like this when we have a God like we have and we have the promises like we have? So he begins to pray immediately. Uh, that the king, he'd get an opportunity to speak to King Artaxerxes. You just didn't walk in and say, hey, Artie, <laughs> you know, let's, got to want to chat with you about an idea that I came up with. <clears throat> These guys weren't that chatty. And, and so you had to wait. And so he just left it in God's hands. He prayed and, and said, Lord, give me an opportunity to approach Artaxerxes related to the opportunity to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. 
And of course, as we saw last time, uh, God did open up that door. And Artaxerxes not only gave him permission to return to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, uh, but also agreed to give him wood that was necessary for the building of the gates. And God did it all in the perfect timing that allowed for fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. And so we pick things up in verse 9 of chapter 2 now. So he makes the journey, and he said, Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters, permission to pass through these different provinces of the Persian Empire. And now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. So he arrives in, in Jerusalem, probably took him a couple of months to get there, a journey of about 900, about a, uh, 900 to 1,000 miles. We remember when um, Ezra went earlier, Zerubbabel went earlier in leading Jews uh, to the land. They were bringing a very, very large number of people. took them about four months to do that. You've got cattle, you've got livestock, you've got children, you've got... Uh, women and men, and so it took a while. He probably traveling all, virtually alone, uh, able to make pretty good time uh, a couple of months. We noticed that he had a royal escort here. Ezra, when he uh, journeyed to Jerusalem, he refused an escort. He felt that in light of his boasting that he had made concerning God, that if he then asked the king for an escort, that it would reflect poorly upon the Lord, that God wasn't able to protect his people. Uh, the king steps in here related to Nehemiah, and he just doesn't even make it an issue of discussion. He sends Nehemiah to Jerusalem with an escort. And I think it's, it certainly doesn't speak of any lack of faith on Nehemiah's part. He probably didn't have a say in it, uh, but it certainly speaks, I think, of the, how Artaxerxes valued Nehemiah. Didn't want anything to happen to him. You remember when he gave him permission, you can go to Jerusalem. And the first question both the king and the queen had is, when are you going to be back? We don't, we, don't, we don't want to give you up anywhere. We want you to uh, be right here close to the king. And so he wanted to make sure that he was safe in all of this. And it certainly wouldn't have hurt Nehemiah coming into Jerusalem with a royal escort from the Persian king. So God works all of these things together for his purposes. And so he arrives, and, and uh, when they do, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of his arrival... They were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Now, Sanballat was called the governor of Samaria in the Elephantine papyri that was written in 407 B.C. And, um, uh, and so that was the position uh, that he had. Uh, Tobiah was an Ammonite official. And so perhaps these two men, it appears that they had uh, their uh, sights on Jerusalem and Judah. They certainly weren't interested in the Jews reasserting, uh, whether their God was a part of it or not, the Jews reasserting themselves in Jerusalem. They had plans for Jerusalem and Judah. And now uh, in, in their plans, suddenly another Jew shows up on the scene 
with orders from the king of Persia to do something good for the children of Israel. All they knew, they didn't know what Nehemiah was coming to do exactly because he hasn't revealed that yet. All they knew is that any elevation of the Jews, of God's people, wasn't something that they were uh, planning on. And so they were leaders of the Samaritans and leaders, uh, a leader of the Ammonites, and both of those groups uh, deeply despised uh, the Jews. Now, when it talks about them being deeply disturbed, it literally means to spoil by breaking in pieces. It can be, it can be translated to tremble with evil. And they're, so they're so full of evil toward the Jewish people that they begin to tremble at this news that someone has come in order to do good for the Jewish people. And, and, and uh, the reason uh, that they trembled in that way because someone had come to do good for the Jewish people is because they were simply no good. It's kind of a funny thing today. You, sometimes you talk with people or you see them interviewed on television or interviewed wherever, and there's people that somehow have the idea that there are no bad people in the world. I just don't understand it. There are bad people in this world. There are people in this world that hate God doesn't mean that they're beyond being saved. There's a lot of people that hated God and ended up being saved. But there are people that hate God and they hate God's people. And when a person like you or me receives a call of God on us to just do anything, whatever it is he's called us to do, and he's called every Christian to do something related to his kingdom, and we start to move out on that calling, there are going to be people that just hate us related to that. That's just the way it is. You pick up a whole new group of enemies in life, but you pick up a whole new group of friends, too, out of it. But nobody should be surprised when we get saved, we're born again, we are drop-dead serious about the things of God and fulfilling His call upon our lives. And if we go into that thinking that everyone's going to like us or everybody's going to be excited about the fact that we got saved or that we're going to serve the Lord, then we're in for a rude awakening. There are people that will hate us because of our relationship with God and our desire to advance His truth and advance His kingdom. It is just the way that it is. We don't repay uh, fire for fire, insult for insult. We don't come down to their level in that. But there is that recognition that that is a part of the deal and then not to be surprised by it. And so this is what they were all upset about. And it was uh, anytime anyone opposes God's people or the advancement of God's people, it's always because there is evil uh, in their heart. And so here he comes on the scene. He gets noticed immediately by the enemies of God's people, the enemies of the Lord. That's the way that it is. And so he came to Jerusalem and he was there three days. And so he comes into town and he settles in and probably resting from a long trip, moving pretty fast probably. And then, and now he's going to get his bearings. What's happening in the city? I got a report from uh, my brother and from other Jews about the condition of the city. Now I need to kind of settle in and before anybody knows who I am and all of what's going on, I need to settle in and see what the condition of the city is. And so after the three days, he arose at night. So what he wants to do here is he wants to do it with um, 
a night survey wants to do it in the evening uh, in order to um, not be discovered, some secrecy about it. So he can just privately, he doesn't want the enemies to know everything that he's got in mind, and so he does it at night. And he took a few men with him, probably men in the city that knew the uh, city well to give him a tour of the city. He's never been to Jerusalem before. And, uh, but he, he, they don't know that he's planning on building, rebuilding the walls. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. So probably riding a donkey is a part of this survey all around the city. And I went out by night through the valley gate uh, to the serpent well and the refuse gate or the dung gate, and, I, and he viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and the gates which were burned with fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and then to the king's pool, but there was no room at that point for the animal under me to pass. And so there was so much rubble, the destruction again that's been sitting there for 120 years. Nobody's moved a rock in this time. And, and so all of this is so great that even a donkey couldn't pass by. It has to dismount and, uh, you know, do whatever he can. And so I went up in the night by the valley. I viewed the wall. And then I turned back and I returned by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the Work. And this is great because Nehemiah is a man of great faith. But uh, one of the things that I really like about Nehemiah is there's nothing he won't do for God. And I, if I'm going to follow someone, I want to follow someone that has that kind of a, a relationship with God and that kind of faith in God. But he's also thorough. He's not an emotional decision maker and, you know, is a leader and he is a leader. Uh, if, if, if a leader gets pegged as being someone who's just making a bunch of emotional decisions one after another, 90% of them end up being wrong, uh, you're using up a lot of leadership collateral related to those that are following you because pretty soon they'll look and say, I don't think this guy hears the Lord. So Nehemiah is a very thorough man. And so he wants to, before he tells everybody about what God has put on his heart and what he's, uh, what, uh, he, he wants to do and to lead them into, he wants to take and get a vision of how big the job is, and then he wants to count the cost. And Jesus spoke about counting the cost, didn't he, related to salvation. It's a funny thing about Jesus. Sometimes you get, we'll do an altar call, and they get the organ going, and everybody gets kind of the motions and the pull and the hole and everything. Jesus, he just didn't have an organ. didn't even have an accordion. <laughs> Jesus would say stuff like, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now let the line form right here. And it would form because the Holy Spirit would be at work. The same thing today. I'm not putting stuff down that different people uh, maybe can be led of the Lord to, to use necessarily. But here, here Jesus spoke about, hey, you want to follow me. This is the deal. This is what it's going to take to follow me. It's going to be the death of self to follow me. People say, boy, this Christian life, I just feel like I'm dying one day at a time. You're doing good. It is the death of the flesh. But the wonderful thing about death related to God is he always makes resurrection follow the death. 
And so Jesus spoke about counting the cost. Hey, listen, don't just get all emotional and following me and just say, yes, I am. And you haven't sat down and really thought about what I'm calling you to do and what it's going to mean to follow me. I'll give you the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. That won't be a problem. The power won't be a problem. The will will be the issue. Are you willing to live this kind of life? Surrender your life completely to me and then let me use your life 100% the way that I want to. Are you willing to give me that kind of control? And, and so that's the counting of the cost. Nehemiah comes in, he looks at the thing, and, and he's, going to count, he's going to count the cost related to what it is. Okay, God's spoken this to me. I haven't seen how, how big the job is. Now he sees how big the job is, and he stays committed to the work. Remember when the Apostle Paul uh, got uh, uh, saved on the road to Damascus, kind of got knocked off his high horse? And then God spoke as he goes into Damascus, and he's blind and all and and he gets saved on the road, you know. Who who are you, Lord? And 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 then the Lord speaks to a, a Christian by the name of Ananias in the city of Damascus and said, Listen, I just saved a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus? That guy's like killing people and he hates every Christian and I what in the world Yeah, I want you to go over there and I want you to go where he's staying, this is where he's staying, lay hands on him. I've got a lot of things planned for this guy, good things, he's gonna be a servant of mine, but at the moment I'm showing him all of the things that he's going to have to suffer for my sake. Now, those of us who know the life of Paul and ministry of Paul, whoa. You go through that list, as Pastor Blanc spoke about last Sunday morning, all the things that he went through, and he still said yes to all of it. I think that sometimes it's nice when the Lord leads us step by step, and it's only we get about six steps in we realize, oh, I think this is what he has in mind. And now I'm in too deep to back out. I like what Pastor Chuck said about uh, going into the ministry uh, it, it, I think in one of his early pastorates and the Lord led him in everything, he said, yeah, the Lord called us to do that before we had enough sense to say no. And sometimes the Lord does it that way. But here's this counting of the cost that, that, uh, that he does. And he wants to look at it. He's going to lead people into a work. He ought to know what that work is. He's a very, very solid uh, leader, very, very uh, good man. And so he assesses the entire uh, situation uh, and, and viewed it with his own eyes and he found out it's exactly, exactly as my brother had told me uh, it, 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 it would be and it, and it was. And so he then, at this point in time, verse 17, he then spoke to uh, the leaders and, and the, the Jews there in Jerusalem and he imparts the vision to them. And I said to them, you see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire. And then he gives them the proposition. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. He's very diplomatic. But what he is saying to a group of very powerful Jews and common Jews as well is this is a disgrace. Again, as I said at the beginning, He's saying to them, this is a disgrace. It's a disgrace to us. It's a disgrace to our God. And the light of the promises that we have been given by our God to be living in this condition is unacceptable. 
And it's wonderful when God raises up someone in the body of Christ to then speak that in a situation. Maybe the Lord speak to a situation in our, our own individual life tonight, right now, just in the privacy of your own heart. What in the world is this? What kind of a house is this? What kind of a life is this? What kind of thinking is this in the light of the promises that I have given to you as a Christian, the light of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. You're living a hundred miles below that standard. And it's a good thing when the Holy Spirit comes on the scene. And so here's a whole group of people. They're God's people. They're Jews. They're all God's people. And, and, and they no longer see Jerusalem the way that Nehemiah sees Jerusalem. They see Jerusalem and say, well, this is just the reality of it. Nehemiah sees Jerusalem in the light of the Word of God. Like in Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2, it declares, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, speaking of Jerusalem, in His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole world, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great King." So they're all gotten used to just living Christianity down into this sub, sub, sub level. He comes on the scene and he's fluent in the Bible and the understanding of the Bible. He said, hey folks, this is the city of the great king. What in the world are we doing getting used to this? Then you apply it over to the fact that you and I individually as Christians are something far greater than the walls of Jerusalem. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the holy of holies in the world today. The presence of God Almighty, the person of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And so no reason to be living below what God has called us to. And so he gives them the vision here and then he speaks to them of the fact that this is, God has called them, him and them to do this. And I told them of the hand of my God who had been good upon me and also of the king's word that he had spoken to me. And so he says, listen, this is it. And my brother came and he told me this and then I, and I fell down and I couldn't even stand on my feet when I heard the condition, your condition and the condition of Jerusalem. And I began to fast and I began to pray and God opened up the door uh, to speak with the king and the king did this miracle to, and, all of it, and gave him the whole story. In other words, this is a God thing that's going on. We're going to build these walls. God has sent me to lead you to build these walls. That's the message that he gave to them. And then notice their response to it. And so they said, let us rise up and build. And then they set their hands to do this good work. So Nehemiah comes on the scene with godly vision. They recognize it. The Holy Spirit bears witness to godly vision. And godly vision is valuable stuff. The Holy Spirit bears witness to that. And they recognize this is something that God is wanting to do. And they join with Nehemiah, and they agree to uh, begin to to do this uh, to do this work in the building of the walls. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and now we've got a third one in here. These these people like talk about an unholy trinity. And then Geshem the Arab, he heard of it. And their response to this so immediately news goes out. Okay, the stranger that came into town. 
He, he came in, and this is the plan that he has. So it begins to spread through Jerusalem. And they heard the news, and to them, it was funny. They just started to laugh. We've been around these Jews for decades. We've been around these Jews for 120 years since these walls were destroyed. We've seen them come in groups of 50,000. We've seen them come in groups of five to 10,000. And they come here, and they don't make any difference. And so as they look at it and they say, these Jews are going to accomplish something here, it was, it was a absolute uh, folly uh, to them. And so they laughed at him, at them, and then they despised us. And they said, what is this thing that you're, you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? And so they, uh, in the very, very powerful man, it's a very, very strong opposition against him. It's interesting that third man uh, by the name of Geshem, he's as powerful an enemy as the other two. Geshem and his son, we know from history, they ruled a league of Arabian tribes that took control of uh, the area of Moab and Edom, Judah's uh, neighbors to the east and the south, and uh, also took uh, uh, part of Arabia and the approaches to Egypt that were under the uh, Persian Empire. So you have very, three very, very massively powerful people in Jerusalem. And it's important to realize this in the light of what Nehemiah is going to say to them in just a moment. In other words, this is very, very serious opposition. So God gives you vision. God puts a name on your heart to speak the gospel to. God calls you to do a particular thing. And we begin to take that step and all of a sudden we're confronted with opposition. Uncle! And he doesn't do that. Super strong opposition. And this guy is not going to back down at all. You know why? He's got a relationship with God. And he knows God is bigger than... If God has called him to do this thing, then they are going to do this thing. That's all there is to it. Do you realize that about your life and about your calling? Calling is everything. It's everything. It is, it is the sole it, main determination of success. If we just step out in faith in what God has called us to do, we will be successful. God will make sure of it. His reputation is completely bound up in us. And so here comes this opposition and, and this first form that their opposition takes against them as they begin to laugh. It, what they've decided that they're going to do for God. Kind of like when you step out and God's call upon your life and somebody says, you're going to do what? It's always hard when it comes from a friend or comes from a family member that's known us forever. It's a crazy thing. You get saved, you know. People have known you forever. And then, boom, what a change. And then God calls you to do something, and all your friends go, that is crazy. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't even match your socks in the morning, and you're gonna, you think God has called you to do this? And the laughing and the mocking begins to, to occur. And it's a great evidence of the fact that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. A miracle happens in our life when we become Christians. We really do become a new person. 
And, and so they begin to laugh at him. You're going to do what? These Jews are going to do what? And that ridicule, very, very powerful weapon of the enemy. And Satan uses it very, very powerfully as well. And you think about today. I don't think there's any Christian who is living their Christian life and uh, being vocal about it where, uh, as the Spirit leads and, and all, except that we're going to uh, face ridicule, whether it's in a classroom at school or whether it's in business or whether it's in the sciences or uh, in education someplace or wherever it might be. The ridicule is just uh, something that is going to be a, a part of, of our our lives. Uh, somebody put a quote uh, concerning ridicule as a kind of a device of opposition, He said, it is the weapon of those who have no other. So once a person begins to ridicule, and that's that's the greatest opposition that they can mount at the moment, you realize they don't have anything else to use against me, or they would be using it. And the key to ridicule is this. The only reason it can be effective is if we believe it, if we believe the ridicule and the lie. Ridicule can never stop a child of God in our service to the Lord. It, it is powerless to stop us. The only way that it can be effective is if we believe it in the face of what God has told us in His Word or He's called us to do, and then we allow it to defeat us. There's no reason for ridicule or mocking this kind of opposition to defeat any of us, though all of us will face it. If we do not face it from another human being, we will certainly face it from the devil. You're going to do what? I've been knocking you around for 30 years. And then now you're going to do something for God? Hey, he, 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 when he starts to use that kind of stuff, he realizes he doesn't have anything solid to use in the face. And his only hope is it will believe the lies that he's saying to us. So to recognize that about... Uh, the, the ridicule. One of the nice things about getting a little bit older and a little bit older in the Lord is that ridicule, while it always hurts, so nobody says, oh, I, boy, I just starting a brand new week and I hope they just ridicule me to death this week. I mean, nobody's looking, at, looking for that. So it always hurts. But when you grow older and we, and we know the Lord deeper and deeper and deeper and you look at the world and you look at the mess and the insanity of the world, you hold the world's opinion and just a smaller and smaller and smaller kind of influence upon our life. All that matters is what does God think about us, and that's a good thing, and then to take that step. So this is the, this is the attempt that they make now and, and to, to get them to, to stop. And then they make the threat, will you rebel against the king? In other words, if you do this, this is going to be considered a rebellion. And that whole thing had been used to stop the work of the temple, uh, you know, decades earlier. And so Nehemiah, he answered them. And he said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Shazam. It's as simple as that. God has called me to do this thing. And because He has called me to do this thing, it's going to be done, gentlemen. These are three of the most powerful men in that part of the world. And He tells them that right to their face. I don't care who you are. I don't care what titles you have, buckaroo. God has called us to do it. You're going to see walls around this city. 
Now that's some faith to have in God's promises and in His Word and His call upon our lives. And it takes that kind of faith to move forward in a big project like that. Believe God. Believe that if He calls you to do something, it's going to be done. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. It will be done. He will make sure of that. There's no doubt in Nehemiah's heart here. The God of heaven himself. Gentlemen, you have some very big titles, but the God of heaven isn't one of them. The God of heaven himself will prosper us, and therefore we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Oh. He not only stuck in the knife, he twisted it. And he let them know, this is Jerusalem. This belongs to the God of the Jews, not the Ammonites, not the Samaritans, not the Arabs. And you don't have any part in this city. He knew that they were concerned over the fact that the fact that this wall would get built, that they would lose control of that city that they had plans for. And Nehemiah says, listen, guys, I know what you're thinking before you think it here. You have no heritage in this city. Not only will you not lay a single stone with us, but I remind you, you have no historical heritage in this city. That's called slamming the door on, on that, that situation. God has called us to do it. We're going to do it, and we're going to do it alone. And then when you get into chapter 3, Nehemiah, there's the record here of the uh, beginning of the building of, of the walls all the way around the city. It's just, a, just absolutely a huge uh, task. So it's very, very interesting to notice the plan that Nehemiah set forth for accomplishing it. So when he goes out on that night and he does a survey of the city, and you think, well, what did he do? Just like take pictures and post them on Facebook or what? No, when he, when he went around that city, he was determining, okay, this is what it's going to require, and this, we've only got this much labor, we've got this many square feet of, or, or feet of walls that need to go up, and so here's the plan that's going to be required to do that. And chapter 3 kind of unfolds the plan that came out of his survey and it's interesting to look at it as we're going to go through in just a moment. Everyone had a place in the work. You're going to see perfumers building the wall. How, how can a, a man that makes perfume be of any help in building a wall? But everybody had a place. Everybody was needed in accomplishing the work, no matter who they were. It's like in the body of Christ, Jesus, the Bible says, every one of us has received a gift of the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish what God has called us to do in, in the body of Christ. All of us are needed in accomplishing God's work. And, and so the, there is this, all kinds of different people that we're going to see. And it is interesting before we get into it to realize that the people were put to work nearest to their homes. And so this is a guy who knows the heart of people, knows their motivation. If you're going to rebuild the wall and it's near your home, 
Are you going to do a better job than if you're building the wall near Joe Bacicalupi's house on the other side of the city? You're going to build that wall the best you know how to build that wall because you've got to look at that every day. Daddy, look at that wall. It's all crooked and junky. Hey, shut up, kid. That's the wall I worked on right there. So you're going to do a good job on it. The other thing about it is that you wouldn't have to travel so far. You just go right out the front door and begin work on, on the wall. You don't have to travel all around the city. And then as we're going to see in case of an attack upon them, uh, they, and, and during an attack they might be tempted to leave their post where they're building the wall, but you don't abandon your post when you're protecting your homes and protecting your family. And so this was uh, kind of the setup of things. And then Eliashib, the high priest, he rose up with his brethren, the other priests, and they built the sheep gate. And the sheep gate was really important to the priests because that's the gate they would bring the sheep in in order to offer them as sacrifices at the temple. So he puts them to work. Here's these religious leaders. Yes, they can get dirt under their fingernails. And he puts them in this place, and he puts them at the place where, which would be the most important to them for rebuilding the wall there at the Sheep Gate. And so they consecrated it. They hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it then as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built. And so Jews, not only from Jerusalem, but they came from the surrounding cities to be a part of this. And good for them. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. And also the sons of uh, Hassaneah built the fish gate. And so the fish gate was named because that's where they would bring fish into the city to sell it uh, for the daily food, a high kind of fish diet uh, in those days with uh, the Sea of Galilee close by, the Mediterranean. And so they laid its beams and they hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, uh, Merimoth uh, made repairs. And next to them, Meshulam made repairs. Next to them, Zadok made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoaites, also kind of out-of-towners. They came in and made themselves a part of it, the repairs. But their nobles of the Tekoaites did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. It's the only record in the whole chapter of a group of people refusing, Jews refusing to enter into the work. They said, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to be involved in this. We're not going to do this manual labor. And it's interesting, God noticed who did work and he noticed who didn't work. And it's fascinating to realize that today, the body of Christ, he notices who does work and who doesn't work. Those who do work, faithful to what God has called us to do. The Bible says one day we're going to hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And those who don't work will not hear that from the lips of our Savior when we see him face to face. There is no such thing as a serviceless Christianity. Again, we've all been called to do something to expand God's kingdom and build up the body of Christ. And so he notices even today, ah, this person works, this person doesn't work. He has very good records. And moreover, Jehoiada and uh, Meshulam, they repaired the old gate. So the third gate is the old gate. And they laid its beams, they hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, uh, uh, Melathiah. The Gibeonite, Jadon, and uh, Maranatha, uh, 
Merino, okay, you see it. And, and the men of Gibeon in Mizpah repaired the res, residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. And next to him, Uziel, the, uh, uh, one of the goldsmiths, we'll leave the sons out, the fathers out of it. Next to him, Uziel, one of the goldsmiths, so we got a jeweler working here, he made repairs. And next to him, uh, Hananiah, one of the perfumers. I mean, that's got to be, that's got to be soft hands. And yet, the time to do this work doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you can carry a 100-pound rock or you can carry a 5-pound rock. It's the point. It's the principle. Everybody takes their place. And God bless him. His name's in the Bible for having done that. And so he was a part of the making of the repairs, and they fortified Jerusalem as far as, as the broad wall. And next to them, uh, Rephaim, the, uh, uh, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, leader of the half-district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, uh, Jedeiah uh, made repairs in front of his house. Next to him, uh, Hattush made repairs, uh, Malchijah. And uh, Hashab repaired another section as well as the tower of the ovens. And next to him was Shalom, uh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. Even the gals got involved. They didn't just bring the potluck lunch. They brought, I'm not complaining about that. That's always good. But here they are, boom. I mean, just taken. It's wonderful. You see the old pictures of um, Jerusalem or, or Israel in general, a little bit before uh, 1948 and the War of Independence, and then immediately after, and I didn't matter what sex you were or what you're whatever, I mean, you were draining swamps, you were doing all kinds of work. They're tough, tough, tough people. And so the daughters were involved in making the repairs. And uh, Hanan and the inhabitants of uh, Zenoa repaired the valley gate, another gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. So they, they were cooking with gas, as they say. Uh, Malchijah, uh, he was a leader of the district of Beth uh, Hakarim and repaired the refuse gate, another gate, and he built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Shalom, Shalom the, uh, he's leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate, so another gate that's listed. He built it, uh, covered it, hung its doors with all the bolts and the bars. He repaired the wall of the pool of uh, Shelah by the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, leader of half the district of Bethsur, made repairs as far as the place of the front of the tombs of David to the man-made pool as far as the house of the mighty. After him, the Levites under Rehum, uh, made repairs. Next to him, uh, Hashabiah, leader of the half-district of uh, Keilah, made repairs for his district. After him, their brethren under uh, uh, Bavai, and uh, leader of the other half of the district of that same place, made repairs. Next to him, Ezer the son, uh, we'll leave the son out, the leader of Miz, Mizpah. He repaired another section in front of the ascent to the armory at the buttress, and after him, uh, Baruch, the son of Zabai, 
carefully repaired the other sections. So a little bit of attention to detail, we're told here. He carefully repaired that from the buttress uh, to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. And after him, Merimoth repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the door uh, uh, to the end of the house of Eliashib. And after him, the priests and the men of the plain, they made repairs. After him, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs opposite their house. After them, Azariah the, uh, um, made repairs to his house. Uh, after him, uh, Binuai repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress. Azariah apparently had some very good real estate there because a lot's being measured off of that, maybe some corner place, even as far as the corner. Uh, Palau made repairs opposite the buttress and on the tower which projects from the king's upper house that was by the court of the prison. After him, uh, Pedeiah uh, made repairs, and moreover, the Nethinim, who dwelt it in Ophiel, made repairs as far as the place in front of another gate, the water gate toward the east and on the projecting tower. And after them, the Tekoaites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. And beyond the horse gate, a new gate, the priests made repairs in front of his uh, own house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, uh, Shemaiah, uh, the keeper of the east gate, so the east gate is mentioned here, made repairs. After him, uh, Hananiah uh, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, they repaired another section. After him, uh, Meshulam made repairs in front of his dwelling. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, so got some more jewelers involved, made repairs as far as the house uh, of the Nethanim of, uh, and of the merchants in front of the Mifkad gate, another gate that's mentioned, and as far as the upper room at the corner, and between the upper room at the corner as far as the sheep gate. So once again, we return to the sheep gate. The goldsmiths and the merchants uh, made their repairs. And so this is the description of, of the repair of the gates. I think it would be uh, wrong to move uh, from this particular chapter without uh, speaking of how this chapter, uh, some have seen in this chapter, and I agree with them, a beautiful picture of the life of, of, the, of Christ in the Scriptures. Remember, uh, Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they which speak of me. And I'm convinced every single part of this word, if we take it down to its absolute essence, it all comes back to Christ, something of his life, of his nature, of his teaching, of him in some way. The whole volume of the book uh, speaks of him. I look forward to being in heaven one day and uh, being able to take courses that will, or whatever we, you know, the clarity that we'll be able to to have related to all of that. But as a picture of Christ, this whole description of the building of the walls begins uh, very significantly at the Sheep Gate, which speaks of the cross of, of Jesus Christ and uh, reminds us of Jesus as the Lamb of God who died for the sins uh, of the world. He could, have begun, he could have begun this process at any other gate. He doesn't do that. He begins everything 
That whole project begins at the sheep uh, gate. It's interesting that nothing is said in the building of the sheep gate about locks and bars, as is mentioned with other gates, because the way is never closed to a lost sinner that wants to come to the Savior. The second gate that is mentioned in verse 3 is the fish gate, and it speaks of having come uh, to the sheep gate, to salvation in Jesus Christ. Now we have the call upon our lives as Christians to become fishers of men. And then in verse 6, the old gate, speaking of the Word of God, becoming what now directs our paths in life, Uh, The Lord spoke to Jeremiah and said, Stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it, and then you will find rest for your souls. And so, as the old saying goes for us as Christians today, God's people in any age, we don't need any new truths. We just need new experiences in the old truths. And, uh, And so the old gate represents that. And then the fourth gate, verse 13, is the valley gate. In other words, to walk with the Lord and to serve uh, the Lord, spend time in His Word is going to uh, result in growing uh, to appreciate the position of humility in life and in the Christian uh, life. As Jesus said, even for even the Son of Man did not come to serve but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. In verse 14, there's the refuse gate or the dung gate, and this speaks of the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit as he comes into our life when we're born again, and he gets the dung out, the spiritual dung, the mental dung, the emotional dung, the refuse, the garbage out of our lives. The old saying is is that God's a wonderful fisherman. He not only knows how to catch the fish, but then clean the fish after he's caught us. And he's very good at doing that, at both catching us and uh, cleaning us. And then verse 15, the fountain gate, a picture of the Holy Spirit flowing out of our lives as Jesus spoke concerning the Holy Spirit in John chapter 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me. And he who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Verse 26, the water gate is mentioned. Again, it speaks of the Word of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit to daily cleanse us and to wash us from the defilement of the Word, as Paul wrote concerning marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, uh, the church, with the washing of water by the Word. In verse 28, the horse gate speaks of the return of the Lord at the time of Armageddon and uh, the battle of Armageddon, Revelation chapter 19. Let me read a verse for you. And then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Talking about waiting for a, a prince on a white horse. I saw the heaven open, and behold, the white horse, and he, speaking of Jesus, who sat on him, was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And then in verse 29, the east gate speaks of the return of the Lord uh, to establish his kingdom following the battle of Armageddon. He comes from heaven, battle of Armageddon, and then he comes to Jerusalem, his foot set... uh, 
he, he alights on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives is a great earthquake, and the, and the earth is split, and then he enters in through the east gate uh, uh, on the side of the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem, as is recorded in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 and, and 4. And then in verse 31, the Mifkod gate, and the Mifkod means the gate of judgment or review. So following the thousand-year reign of Christ, there'll be the white throne judgment uh, for those that have rejected the salvation that God has provided uh, in his Son. And, uh, and so speaking of that judgment, but then notice it doesn't end with the Mifkod gate. You'd think he'd be done with that. He brings it all the way back around to the sheep gate once again, back to the lamb that was slain, back to Jesus, back to the cross. And the reason that he doesn't, that he does that is because he doesn't want any life to end at the Mifkod gate. He doesn't want any life to end in judgment, but rather at the place of grace. The Bible says that God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so how faithful he is continually to bring us back to the cross and the great themes of salvation and forgiveness and of grace. And it really is a beautiful, beautiful picture uh, of the Lord contained in the Scriptures. We love him and... uh, We give God praise for every portrait of our Savior that he gives us in his word. Let's stand together now, and uh, we'll close this evening, and we'll pick things up, Lord willing, in chapter 4 next week. Father, we thank you for the beauty of Jesus. We thank you for the portrait of these gates. We thank you that every, everything began and ended at the sheep gate. And we thank you that everything begins and ends for us all of eternity in the light of that cross of our Savior. Thank you for Jesus tonight. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to endure the sacrifice that you were willing to endure for people like me and people like us to be forgiven and to be saved. And not only to be forgiven and saved, but then to be like Nehemiah, where you call us to do something related to your kingdom. And you bring meaning and purpose to our life that we were looking for all the days of our life. Thank you, Lord, for your call upon our lives. Thank you that we get to be a part of your work. Thank you for the meaning and the substance that it brings to our lives and what we learn from you in that place. And thank you for the instruction of your word tonight, just the beginning of looking, Lord, at what's required to not only begin a work but finish a work that you call us to and to deal with the oppositions that we face. And I pray, Lord, and we pray for one another, that if a single person in this room has backed off in their allowing their light to shine as Christians in any environment, or they have allowed uh, under the influence of scorn or mocking, or they have allowed 
that scorn or mocking any of us to move from what you've called us to do. Lord, I pray you just speak to our heart right now and just just remind us that that's only powerful because we let it be powerful, but that you still have a plan for our lives that you want us to step up into and to accept that scorn and that mocking and, and to cause it to draw us closer to you and then to move forward in that and to watch that call be completed through our lives. And I think the Lord's speaking to somebody tonight in this vein. Don't let, don't let what people think of you push you away from being vocal about your faith and, and letting a torrent of living water come out of your life and believing God for great things and even articulating those things, having great, great faith. If that's happened to you, just realize you fell prey to one of Satan's oppositions that we all face. But God doesn't want that to go on another day in your life. Now he's exposed it for what was really happening there. You take that promise that God has given you concerning your life. You take that vision that he has given to you. And you embrace that fully once again and get back to work and watch God bring it to fruition in your life. Thank you, Lord, that every one of your promises in your word is yea and amen. And we pray that this week you will help us not to live below the Christian life that is described in this word. And we pray, Lord, that if any of us have settled into a low spiritual life or moral life or life of the mind or whatever it might be, and we've grown accustomed to being in that place, that tonight and all through the week, the voice of your Holy Spirit, you would shake us up from that place, make us uncomfortable to be there, bring conviction to us, Lord, so that we get out of that state and move fully into the height and the beauty of the relationship and the calling that's described in the Word. Thank you, Lord, for your Word, how it applies to us today. May it continue to speak and rearrange the furniture in our lives, make changes in our lives throughout this coming week. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are here tonight and you are not yet a Christian, you have